Welcome to Brookfield Perspectives, a podcast from Brookfield that explores how the firm invests in the backbone of the global economy. What do we mean by that? The things you interact with every day that you may not even think about, like wind turbines, water treatment facilities, cell towers, and office buildings. Investing in these critical assets helps support and accelerate the pace of progress in businesses and communities around the world. I'm Lauren Steffi, and I've been writing about energy and investing for the better part of three decades. I'll be your guide as we meet the business leaders at one of the world's largest alternative asset managers. We'll talk about how to spot trends early, what it takes to turn contrarian ideas into opportunities, and how to uncover the next great company. And we'll go on site, where the rubber meets the road at innovative companies and projects around the globe. Our last arc of the podcast explored decarbonization and the race to get to net zero. In our new arc, we're diving into the theme of deglobalization, which covers energy and supply chain resilience, transport infrastructure, and bringing critical manufacturing back on shore. To set the scene and explore the big trends and opportunities in this area, I spoke with Ron Bloom, Vice Chair in Brookfield's Private Equity Group, and Matt Hutton, Managing Director in Brookfield's Infrastructure Group. Ron's based in New York and has been with Brookfield for seven years. Before that, he served in the Obama administration, where he helped lead the restructuring of General Motors and Chrysler and worked on manufacturing policy. Matt has also been with Brookfield for seven years and is based in Houston, where he leads energy and industrial infrastructure investment activities. We're talking today about deglobalization, and that has a negative sound to it, I think, in a lot of people's minds. But I want to unpack that and tell us a little bit about what deglobalization is. How do you guys define it at Brookfield? And Ron, you can start if you want. Sure. So you're right. It has its own connotation. What I think is going on is that companies are giving greater weight to geopolitical risks and opportunities in their sourcing decisions. I think that's really what deglobalization is. Now, what I see happening is there's what I would call a self-reinforcing feedback loop between the perception and actions of government on the one side and business on the other. The government, in particular, I'm speaking about the U.S. government, has come to believe that our national security requires that both the intellectual and physical labor required to make certain basic components and sometimes finished products needs to take place in locations either directly on our soil or in locations controlled by our very closest allies. This belief is being backed with both restrictions on the negative side and incentives on the positive side for business to rethink their supply chain decisions. And as those relocation decisions are being made, that in turn is having an influence on both the shape of certain industrial development and future government policy itself. So, Matt, it seems like there was a big focus on globalization not that long ago. We were becoming an increasingly globalized world. What's changed? So, first off, as you mentioned, really beginning in, say, the 1950s, the global order underwent almost a 60-year run of globalization, just as goods and services became a bit more freely traded. And we saw supply chains become increasingly global, but also increasingly complex. To Ron's point, 
What that really resulted in is these geopolitics between countries becoming increasingly intertwined with those economic relationships that had been built through the supply chain. Now, what's interesting and that many people don't realize is we've actually been undergoing a period of deglobalization for almost 10 years now, as trade as a percentage of GDP actually peaked in about 2008. So the last time we saw a period of deglobalization like this was really the World War I, World War II era, where we saw global trade continuously decouple. It lasted around 30 years or so. There's certainly some parallels to that geopolitical climate that there are to today. But if history is any lesson, we could be undergoing this current trend for a decade plus to go. But I think as far as what's driving that, as these supply chains have been increasingly intertwined, that has forced governments and geopolitics to also become intertwined. And you've been forced to confront autocratic nations with traditional democratic nations. I think Matt's rendering of the history is spot on. I want to focus a little bit, though, on the proximate causes of what happened, starting as Matt has identified about a dozen or so years ago. I think there were really two things that came together at the same time, and in some ways they were self-reinforcing. One was you had the rise of what one might call the left behinds. So you had particularly blue-collar workers who felt like that process that Matt described was not working for them. And I think we see this in many ways without delving deeply into partisan politics. And look, politicians are attuned to what people are saying and thinking. So politicians in both parties have now come to see that it's bluntly good politics to give voice to folks who feel like globalization wasn't working for them. On the other side, which again is part of a feedback loop, is China has become more and more assertive about its needs and its desire to play a lead role on the global stage. And during this period that Matt referred to, obviously our large global adversary was the Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union is a very different case than China. The Soviet Union was fundamentally an inward-looking nation. They did not want to have deep interdependencies with the West. And they built a block of their own, but it was in many ways self-contained. Some amount of energy trading, but very little goods and services flowed from what used to be called the Warsaw Block to the West. The rise of China was a very different story. China from, let's just say, 1990 was an essential part of global supply chains. If you look at the percentage that China occupies of global steel making or of global tire making and now of vehicles, for example, China was fully integrated into the global economy. And what that meant is as China began to assert itself more, and there was that political backlash against that's the sort of cauldron into which these concerns have percolated. Matt, what about some other factors here? India was a big beneficiary of globalization. Where does India stand now? We think India has immense growth potential in front of it, not just from the evolving middle class and what that's going to do to the domestic economy, but 
the ability to play an increasingly important role, in some cases, taking the place of countries like China, which is gradually, let's say, moving out of its interconnectivity that it's traditionally built within the global supply chain. India has a very unique position as a allied country with the West, but also with certain countries in the East to play that key role. I think everyone knows this, but India is soon to be the most populous nation on earth. Because of the one-child policy, that distance will actually widen. So for the foreseeable future, you have the largest nation on earth in terms of population. You have a much younger nation in terms of population average age than China. And you have this giant opportunity with a growing middle class that is still got literally hundreds of millions of people who can enter that middle class and are looking for the things that everyone in the world looks for, which is to lead a better life. You guys have done a great job laying this out historically, regionally, but I'm wondering about some specific things that have happened in recent years. The pandemic caused a lot of people to rethink supply chains. The Ukraine-Russia conflict is also having an effect both in terms of supply chains and things like energy delivery in Europe and whatnot. How do these specific events change our long-term thinking and how much are those sorts of specific points in time driving a view of deglobalization over the long term? The trend towards deglobalization, it's been underway for a decade now, but really since the pandemic, we've seen references to it increase materially. And that's for all the reasons that you had mentioned. We've seen both customers as well as governments really require suppliers to build increased resilience into this supply chain. There's a number of ways that's been implemented. The most straightforward ways and the ways that require the least amount of capital is by either diversifying suppliers closer to home or allied markets or just leaving more inventory in the supply chain. But what's been interesting recently is we've been seeing increased focus on the third step of ensuring supply chain resiliency, which has been onshoring critical manufacturing or physically moving the supply chain and the manufacture of products back into home or allied markets. Now, that's an increasingly complex undertaking. And importantly, it's requiring very large-scale capital as we are trying to recreate the supply chains that had been built up for some products over 60 years. We're trying to recreate those in a matter of five to 10 years. This is why really this theme has been an increased focus for our business, because we think that the large-scale capital that's required to support that onshoring is going to not only come from governments and large-scale public companies, but we think private capital is going to need to be part of that solution. The pandemic is really an accelerant. I think about this in risk terms because as investors, we're always asking ourselves about risk and reward, risk and return. And I think what the pandemic did is in a way that often a crisis does, it kind of lays bare a new risk that had been underappreciated. So as China locked down and we couldn't make cars, 
because we couldn't get semiconductors or we couldn't make probably almost everything because China's so integral, the risk of that far-flung supply chain became more evident. So now from a company's perspective, investing in resiliency is a good investment. If everything goes perfectly, an investment in resiliency is a waste. Well, why did you do it? In some ways, it's like any other insurance product. If you know your house isn't going to burn down, you shouldn't buy fire insurance. But you buy fire insurance because it might burn down. I view the investments in resiliency as really insurance. They are investing for the possibility that this supply chain is more fragile than we appreciated. And therefore, when it breaks, your ability to continue to produce your product and bring it to market without disruption is a competitive advantage. The average new vehicle that's sold today has over a thousand semiconductor chips inside that single vehicle. Now, during the pandemic, we saw the impact of having to source those products from faraway nations where people had to wait six plus months in order to secure a new vehicle. Over time, as automation and electric vehicles gradually gain market share, the amount of semiconductor chips that support a new vehicle is expected to go up almost 10 times. So to Ron's point, while investing in resilience in the supply chain, it's buying insurance, but it's also increasingly becoming almost a license to operate for some of these companies because it is going to be very challenging 10 years from now to say to a customer that there is going to be a significant delay in our product that maybe the manufacturer down the road doesn't have because of different sourcing strategies. So talk a little bit about some specific examples where this affects the Brookfield portfolio. Within our business, we're seeing this materialize in a number of ways, but I'll give just a couple examples. One, on the semiconductor side, we did recently enter into a partnership with Intel in order to construct a large-scale, leading-edge semiconductor manufacturing facility here in the U.S. And really, the catalyst behind that transaction was a need to relocate critical, leading-edge semiconductor manufacturing back into the U.S., we are honored and delighted to be partnering with a blue chip and innovative company like Intel. Now, the other theme where we are seeing this materialize is on the energy security side. We are one of the largest private investors into U.S. liquefied natural gas manufacturing, but also we're a sizable investor in onshore natural gas pipelines in the U.S., especially since the war in Ukraine broke out, energy security in places like Europe has become increasingly important. And having U.S. natural gas supply within their portfolio is increasingly important given the rule of law and stability of supply that the U.S. offers. So that focus has been beneficial for our businesses in the U.S. that are exposed to exporting natural gas. But importantly, as we look across a number of energy infrastructure assets, it's not just the LNG liquefaction facilities. It's also the onshore drilling. It is the pipelines that move that product to market. And so really this 
renewed focus on where is my product coming from and how resilient is that supply chain. It's not just happening in semiconductors. We're also seeing it emerge on things like energy security and energy supply. We've talked a little bit about computer chips, EVs, electric vehicles, LNG exports. These are all industries or sectors that have been affected by deglobalization. Are there any areas that are not affected by it? Any industries or sectors that are left out of this deglobalization movement? First, sectors that would be viewed as having much less of a security theme to them are obviously going to face less of these pressures. So it's not great if I can't get the tie I'm looking for, but it's not a big deal compared to not being able to buy a car. But I think the thing you got to be careful of when you say this sector won't be effective, Matt made the point about cars and the pervasiveness of chips in cars. Chips are going everywhere. When we were doing the work with Intel, I used to say that semiconductors are the steel of this decade. There are very few things in modern life that can be made without a semiconductor. Healthcare. Now all records are digitized. Well, you can't digitize records without semiconductors. So it's farther and farther away within the economy where these things are relevant. I would argue that, yes, there'll be sectors that lag in terms of the importance of this trend, but it's going to be fewer and fewer sectors that are completely immune to what's going on because of the pervasiveness of semiconductors. I'm wondering if this idea of security or supply security is driving a change in philosophy at a lot of companies. When you think about semiconductors, a lot of that production went overseas simply as a cost factor, right? It was just cheaper to make them. And now it seems like we're having to layer in this perhaps harder to define, but nevertheless, very real costs of national security, of supply security. Is that leading to a philosophical change on a part of companies, manufacturers, and others? Look, I think from a company's perspective, their broad objective hasn't changed. They're trying to earn a good risk-adjusted return. But the dilemma is, and Matt made this point, if I can produce a car and have it available for the customer and the guy down the road can't do it because he doesn't have resiliency of supply, then I win. So from the perspective of earning a return for shareholders, that investment in resiliency pays off. One of the reasons this excites us is our capital tends to be patient. This is true, obviously, in our infra business, but it's true throughout Brookfield. It's true in our renewables business. It's true in private equity. Obviously, real estate's a very long-lived asset. So we can really appreciate this comes naturally to us to understand that just because things are going well today doesn't mean they're going to always go well. One of the key catalysts for globalization was access to cheaper labor in other parts of the world. Now, many of the sectors that all tend to fall in the critical manufacturing side and to Ron's point with some level of national security consideration that we are seeing affected by the movement towards deglobalization, it's often now those sectors with high levels of automation in the manufacturing process. So the historical access to lower priced labor is less of a driver for location. 
But importantly, it's also those sectors that have strong domestic consumption so that products aren't then re-exported back out of the manufactured country. And lastly, those sectors that have strong policy support and there's some level of government incentives behind. Some of the key areas we are seeing all three of those attributes come together are things like semiconductors, as we talked about, but it's also electric vehicle and gigafactories on the battery manufacturing side. It's aerospace and defense, it's biomedicine, and it's life sciences. So as we look across our global platform and our local presence, those are the sectors where we are seeing these themes really begin to materialize itself and where we expect to see the largest capital to be required over the next decade or so. You mentioned government's role in all of this. I'm wondering how that affects government indebtedness and basically how this will be funded. Is it going to be something where we're going to at some point have to raise taxes or is it going to be shouldered in part by the private sector? How does that play out? Well, look, I'm not an expert on fiscal policy, but I would say that a little bit like the business investment judgment, the government views these investments as critical. There's a huge amount of slack in the economy when we can't make cars. When a General Motors factory sits idle because they can't get chips, that is lost production. The debates we're having in Washington about the debt and spending on Social Security and such, those are pretty aggressive debates. I think closest place to bipartisan consensus is the importance in investing in these critical industries. The U.S. Chips Act which was important for, again, building up the semiconductor supply chain, is one of the few things that has been passed in the last couple of years that had strong bipartisan support. I think there will be issues about financing it and the tax burden, et cetera. But I think the political consensus on that issue is actually quite positive in terms of the opportunity it suggests. Now, it doesn't mean everyone's going to agree on everything, but I think there is a wide understanding that the government is serving its role in terms of a facilitator of a growing economy by making these investments. The capital required to support this deglobalization trend just in the next 10 years alone is going to exceed a trillion dollars. Even with increased government support and, let's say, bipartisan support like we saw come together on the CHIPS Act will only be a small component of that overall capital need. While governments do provide an important indicator to markets and provide important support and incentives in order to drive some of this trend, we think private capital in particular needs to be an important part of the overall solution in order to help fund that trillion dollars to relocate our supply chains. It doesn't add up. The math doesn't work without private capital. And I think smart people in government understand that their role is to stimulate and facilitate private capital entering, which is why I think there's been a lot of excitement about the Intel deal because it's seen as the right way to think about the problem. Let me ask you guys to play prognosticators here. How do you see these trends playing out over the next, say, 20 to 25 years? What are we going to be talking about in another quarter century when it comes to supply chains and whatnot? (laughs) Oh, I can't (laughs) imagine 
having a firm view of about 25 years ago, I promise you I would have predicted a tiny fraction of what we see today. I think the trend toward computer as an omnipresent part of our society and the digital economy, it's hard to imagine that turning around. What does a nation do when it gets wealthy? It tries to keep the Grim Reaper from the door. So life science is going to be absolutely critical. I think the question, which I'm not going to prognosticate on, but I'll imagine the, the challenging discussion is how that plays into the geopolitical role of China, how it plays into India. Because again, what you have now distinct from the post-World War II period is you really do have this rise of policy driving a lot of this stuff. And while it's not going to be mostly government dollars, there's a lot of government interest. What is, I think, impossible to predict but critical for this to work well is the intelligent, thoughtful application of government support and a thoughtful geopolitical system that can make this the best for all. The dilemma is, as you get into having interaction with government, level of complexity goes up enormously. So managing that complexity of the interaction between government and the private sector and between nations, I think, is really going to be the challenge in the coming period. What will be interesting just to watch as this deglobalization trend evolves is when we look at the sheer dollars of capital required, that is a level of capital that not all countries are going to be able to spend in order to secure a supply chain into their own home market. As we look five, 10 years out, as certain countries in the West, whether it's the US or Europe, begin to solidify their domestic supply chain, inevitably the expectation is they may then open that up to other countries that maybe haven't been able to build the same resiliency. So how is that used as an emerging policy tool over time, I think will be a key trend to keep an eye on. So Ron, over the last eight to 10 years, what's been the most surprising thing you've seen with regards to deglobalization? I think the speed with which the post-World War II consensus broke down surprised me. There were always people who said we shouldn't be headlong rushing into far-flung supply chains, etc. But the political dynamic had a flywheel effect. So I think government's view of the importance of this has come much more quickly than I thought it would. On the other side, the complexity of getting it done is daunting. And this idea of decoupling, it's not a simple issue. We have a deeply, deeply integrated global economy. I think of nearshoring as locating supply chain in a place that either is physically close or politically reliable. But when you actually penetrate into the getting it done, it's really, really hard. What I like about that from an investing perspective is there's huge opportunity, but you have to be discerning because we don't invest on headlines. You actually have to have a financeable project 
with a real market and a real output and a real business. So there's this funny dynamic going on where the cocktail party chatter is all about this. But those of us who live in the trenches kind of get it done. It's a complicated set of problems. That's what I think is good for us because we love digging into complicated issues and we love figuring out what's just rhetoric and what's real opportunity. And I think that's where, from our perspective as investors, that's where this is really going to come, is to get it out of the headlines and get it into the real opportunity to deploy capital and make a fair return. All right. Matt, surprises? I think the biggest surprise is really how quickly COVID accelerated the focus, not just on securing the supply chain, but really on relocating the supply chain. As we had mentioned, this was a decade-long trend towards deglobalization, but COVID really threw gasoline on the fire. So looking at, let's take the first quarter of 2020, and then pull that forward to the first quarter of 2022. References on U.S. public company earnings calls towards reshoring or nearshoring or any of those terms increased by 12x in that short period of time. But what that's really meant is similar to the reaction that many politicians have been forced to make in light of how quickly this has happened, companies have also had to react. So on a very accelerated basis, they are needing to identify specifically within their sector, okay, what projects am I going to build? Where am I going to build it? How am I going to fund that? And what is the commercial model going to be around that project? And given how quickly this relocation of the supply chain has happened, they don't have 10 years to plan that out. It is being done in a matter of months to a year to two years. I think that's where the importance of private capital into the equation is the ability for folks like ourselves to very quickly walk, not run alongside these companies to support these initiatives. That's all for today's episode. Thanks to Ron and Matt for sharing their perspectives on deglobalization. Throughout this arc, we'll explore some of the key areas driving this transition, onshoring critical industries, the new trade routes, and building energy resilience. In the next episode, you'll hear from Lowell Barron, a managing partner and chief investment officer in Brookfield's real estate group, Devin Barnwell, a managing partner and head of Brookfield's logistics portfolio management, and Tom Ragno, principal and founder of King Street Properties. They'll discuss developments in onshoring life sciences, biomanufacturing and logistics, and bringing these critical industries back to the U.S. and the U.K.